All right. See, that's good. It sounds like a bus station in here. That's good. We like that. So kids, uh, you guys are dismissed, elementary kids, so that's preschool, preschool through like fifth grade, and then also youth group, so middle school and high school, you guys are dismissed as well to go out with Pastor Chris, uh, if you would like, unless you want to stay in here with the rest of us. Um, uh, hopefully you got all those announcements that Pastor Jeff gave, lots of great stuff going on, good chance to get uh, involved in it. We're just sort of launching into a new set of those small groups and midweeks for the fall. So this is a great time to, uh, to jump in. You haven't missed anything yet. Um, I have one more announcement that isn't in the bulletin, but it's important. So we don't have membership here at Calvary Chapel Mountain View. We don't keep like a, a list. There's no classes to become a member. If you show up and you consider this your church home, then we consider you to be part of our family. We do keep, though, a little church directory, which we just use internally, which just helps us better minister to people. It's also what the pastors use each week to pray for you guys. So as I always say, if you want to be prayed for during the week, you might as well be in the directory or we're just praying for random people and pray for that person who I've never met, who I know their face. And um, So we've got these little uh, info cards out in the foyer. We'd love to get your info. We're not adding you to lists. We're not putting this out on the internet. Um, and the other thing that we're trying to do today is actually snap some quick pictures of people. Once again, it's not going to go on our Instagram. Uh, it's just for our own little directory that we use just so we can match up faces with names. So if a sweet lady named Mei Ling grabs you and asks you to take a picture, just let her take your picture for goodness sakes. Unless you're super not into it, then don't worry about it. But anyway, that's what this is all about. Um, we'll talk more about it in the coming weeks. We're, we're just trying to get a little better up-to-date so we can better minister to the folks that are here as part of our church family. So um, we have a great text today. It's a thick text today, so I just want to uh, pray and just jump right into it and ask for what uh, is we're going to need God's grace as we go through this one uh, this morning. So let's pray. So Father, we thank you so much for this church family, Lord, and for this place that you've provided and this time that you have prescribed for us to get together each week and to praise you, Lord, to worship you, and also, Lord, to be fed by you through your word. And so, Father, we pray uh, in the midst of everything else that's going on, Lord, that you would just settle our hearts right now, Lord. We pray that that attitude of worship would just continue now as we go to your word and as your spirit speaks to us. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church, Lord, um, not just corporately, Lord, collectively, but we pray you'd speak to us personally and give us open hearts to hear what you would say, Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. One thing I didn't say is that if you need a Bible, you might want a Bible uh, this morning. So you can raise your hands. We've got plenty of Bibles. We can loan you for the day. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we would love you to take this one with you. So if you need one, just throw a hand up and, uh, and Rick will bring you one. Um, for all of you that do have one, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. And we're picking up uh, with verse 13 of chapter 12, kind of right where we left off last time. As we are sort of joining back with Jesus now here in Jerusalem, we are just days before the cross. And, you know, we've seen this scene kind of developing. Right now it's Tuesday of what we call Passion Week, right? That week before the crucifixion. We've looked at Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry. And then on Monday as Jesus returned back into the city and we had the overturning of the tables of the money changers. We had the cleansing of the temple, which certainly all of this just left the religious leaders of Jerusalem, no doubt, with their blood just boiling. And so then on Tuesday morning, we saw last week, he comes back into the city and they start to confront him, right? This sort of a large group, which represented an even larger group called the Sanhedrin. That was that 71-member, kind of the ruling body over the Jewish faith at this time in Israel. And they come to Jesus, and they ask what wasn't a bad question. But remember, they asked him, you know, who gave you the authority? 
You know, who told you to do these things? Where did you get this authority? And we saw Jesus answer, as he always does, in truth and in grace. And he answered them with a parable that we saw was punctuated by a prophecy. You remember, it was that, that parable of the wicked workers, right? To show that these very men were just continuing in this long history, history that the Israel uh, the nation of Israel had, where they had, you know, persecuted. They had killed all of the prophets that God had already sent to them, and they were about to kill the Son of God, right, who'd come to them, as they were rejecting the chief cornerstone who was standing there right in front of them. And at the very end of our text last time, this is what we read in Mark 12, 12, it says that they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. And so we saw these guys kind of retreat, but not to repent. We're going to see this morning, they just retreat so that they can regroup. Because now as we continue on in chapter 12, what we find actually in the balance of the whole chapter is three more attempts by these religious leaders to try to trap Jesus with these very cleverly crafted questions. The first one this morning is going to be all about politics. The next one is going to be all about the afterlife. And finally, a question that they ask him about the law of Moses. All of them designed just to trip him up. They're trying to bring him down. Remember, the Jewish religious leaders at this point are feeling very threatened by Jesus because of his popularity amongst the common people. Because his popularity with the common people was happening at the expense of the popularity of the Jewish religious leaders with the common people. And so we know that they are at this point, they're actively plotting how precisely it is that they are going to kill him, right? Ultimately destroy him. And they're working even now to kind of build a case against him, if you will. They're trying to rise up and create some kind of a division amongst his followers, at least put some kind of a dent, if they can, in this overwhelming popularity and this growing excitement that we've seen from the people concerning him. Jesus had just exposed their evil intentions, so now they're circling the wagons and they hatch this plan and they come up with, like I said, this series of kind of loaded questions. And all of this, keep in mind, all of these questions came right on top of each other, one after another, all of them on this Tuesday, all of them right here in the temple courts, all of them in this very public setting. And every time Jesus answers them, as we would expect, he answers them with this wisdom that is way beyond them. Now, with that said, I do want to say this. Sometimes I think when we look at the, the, these religious leaders, we get this picture in our minds of these guys kind of like the Keystone Cops. Right, like they're just running around and they're bumping into each other. They're trying to trap Jesus and yet they're outmatched by him each and every time. And yet the fact is, what I want us to understand is these guys were not like the Keystone Cops at all. These really, these are brilliant men. These are scholarly men. These are the best and the brightest men that Judaism had to offer. And yet ultimately they were dangerous men because they hadn't submitted that brilliance and they hadn't submitted that intellect to God, right? They were the most learned men of their day and yet it was their hardened hearts that prevented them from recognizing Jesus. And so all of these attacks that we're gonna see in this chapter are just one single kind of a campaign in their assault and yet Jesus escapes all of them. And what a wonderful illustration I think it is of what Paul would later write to the Corinthians where he says that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, that the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. And all of these, uh, these attacks work together wonderfully, I think, just to illustrate that wisdom of Jesus as compared to the wisdom of the world. Now, 
we are going to look at all of them individually, right? Because in each of them, Jesus provides us, I think, with some very specific principles that are so very valuable to us as Christians as we just now try to navigate this life in the world. And so this morning, what we're going to look at is a question about taxes and our relationship with the government, which I have very cleverly entitled, Giving to the Government. Now, aren't you super glad you showed up today, right? Today's the day, of course, we have a dozen visitors, and God bless you guys for coming. But everybody read with me now. Verse, I don't write this stuff, right? I just read it. Verse 13, Mark chapter 12, it says, Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Now remember, there's three main groups of these Jerusalem Jews, all of whom were opposed to Jesus and all of whom were part of this Sanhedrin, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, those are the two different ruling religious groups. And then these Herodians, they were basically a political party within the Jews. They were the ones that actively supported the rule of Herod the Great. That's why they're the Herodians, right? And they sort of preferred to protect their positions and their power by just going with the flow politically. And again, we said it last week, but one thing we can say about Jesus is he's always bringing people together, right? Here we see these three groups who are diametrically opposed to one another in what they believe, but they have one common goal, and that's get rid of this Jesus of Nazareth, even if it meant cooperating with these lifelong enemies. And so here we have this first unlikely pairing. We see the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they come with this first probing political question, but not before they do some proper preparation. Look at verse 14. It says that when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Now, I hold on to your wallet, right? <laughs> Here we have the, the professedly pious Pharisees paired up with these pro-Roman Herodians, and they're going to try to get Jesus to make a political statement that's going to have some very dangerous implications. Now, if you ever want to divide a church, or really any group of people, a question of politics is always a great place to start. But even before they start there, what do they start with? They start to kind of prime the pump with some good old-fashioned flattery. Right? This is a well-laid trap. And I once heard it said, I think it was perfect, they said that gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to their face, but flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. Right? So true. All of these men would have never talked about Jesus privately in this way, right, with these kind of complimentary terms. And yet here they are, to his face in front of this big crowd, they're just like effusively just praising him before they even ask the question. And of course, they're just trying to butter him up, put him a bit off balance if they could to try to make a mistake. And of course, the great irony is that they are hoping that they can trap him in the very area that they're praising him. They're saying, look, we know that you're a man of integrity. We know that you're true. We know that you teach the truth and that you speak the truth no matter who you're talking to. Now, when it says there that, that where it says you care about no one, the idea isn't that he doesn't care about people or that he doesn't have a heart for humanity. It means that he's not influenced by human opinion, right? Followed right up by you don't regard the person of men. Right? They're saying, we know that you teach the very same thing. You answer the same way, no matter who it is that's asking. And of course, they were right. And this is the very thing they hoped that the truth is the very thing that would get Jesus in trouble. And yet, the hypocrisy of their hearts was so obvious because everyone knew that they didn't believe in him. So here they're flattering Jesus that he's true and that he teaches the truth, and yet the truth is what they were not interested in truth at all. 
right? They, it was the furthest thing from the truth. But what they were interested in, as it says there, is catching him in his words. They didn't really care about the response to his question. Trust me, the Pharisees and the Herodians each had their own answer to the question they're about to ask. And incidentally, they were the opposite answer. Right, but as we continue, continuing now, look at the end of verse 14. We get really to the heart of this questionable question. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now, understand, this was a greatly contested question amongst the Jews. And it was certainly a question that was of great interest to the Romans. Because at this time, of course, Israel was an occupied nation, right? They were ruled by Rome. They were part of this large Roman empire and the Jews hated their Roman conquerors. And the Jews were a thorn in their sides. If you look historically, one of the most troublesome spots for the Romans in maintaining the entire Roman empire throughout their history was just maintaining law and order in this little region of Israel. The Jews did not want them there. And the Jews were much more vocal, they were much more forceful than other people in their rebellion against Rome. And the taxes that they had to pay to the Roman government were a great, great point of contention. Every tax that these poor people had to pay was just another reminder that they were a people who were in subjection to Rome. Did historians estimate that the average Jewish family probably paid about 49% of their income in taxes. That's high by any standard, right? 32% of it went to Rome. It was 19% for their crops and 13% like sales tax and other kind of income taxes. About 12% of that went to Jewish taxes an 8% tax on their crops, 4% to the temple. And then usually there was about 5% roughly that you could count on just being extorted by corrupt local officials. But somewhere approaching 49, even 50% of your income. Then on top of that, Rome came up with this tribute tax, which was to be paid once each year by a cit each citizen as a tribute to the emperor. So it was a denarius, which was basically a day's wage, like for a, for a common worker. It was a silver coin called a, a denarius. And the idea behind the tribute was Caesar saying, look, you guys owe this to me. There should be a tribute, kind of an appreciation, you know, because of me, you have roads. Because of me, you have bridges. You have a navy and you have an army and the you know, protecting and policing this entire empire. Because of me, he said, you know, you have fair trade and you can travel and you can do commerce out on the Mediterranean. And so Caesar said, you know, because of all these things, you should want to say thanks to me with some tribute. And of course, this just incensed the Jews even more. So this question about paying taxes and whether it was against the law of Moses, this was a potential powder keg for Jesus to answer. Because if he said, no, you don't need to pay taxes, well, of course, the common people would shout for joy, but he would immediately antagonize the powerful Herodians. Remember, they supported Herod. They supported Rome. They liked the friendship with Rome. They had no problem paying taxes to Rome because they looked at Israel under Roman rule and they said, look, we've never had it so good. We've never had roads like this. We've never had peace like this. We've never been able to travel during the day or travel during the night with these Roman troops everywhere maintaining this peace. We've never had this sense of stability like we have now. And you know what? They weren't wrong. So they saw these advantages to Roman rule. They were much more tolerant of Rome. They were even supportive of Rome than were the Pharisees or these common people. So he would antagonize them if he said that the Jews didn't have to pay taxes. But worse than that, he would have immediately been accused of rebellion by them against the Roman government. So they would have kind of hustled him off and gotten the Romans all riled up pressed charges against him. And Rome, 
was very much like any government before or after, they were pretty touchy about taxes, right? And they were especially touchy about a Jewish teacher speaking to Jewish people about anything that even had the hint of insurrection against Rome. So all of that is kind of wrapped up in a no answer from Jesus. But on the other hand, if he said yes, that you do have to pay taxes, well, instantly he would be on the wrong side of the majority of the Jewish people. Instantly on the wrong side of their intense kind of nationalistic spirit, you know, wanting to be a, a sovereign nation. Remember, they hated the rule of the Romans. They didn't like the idea of paying these pagan rulers, supporting this pagan kingdom with all of these corrupt pagan practices. Every time they paid a tax to Rome, you know, all it did was remind them that they weren't a free people. And not only were they not a free people, but they were paying their money to support the very nation that was keeping them oppressed. And even worse than that, right? But wait, there's more, right? Because worse than that, in the minds of many of the Jews, because Caesar claimed to be a god, they felt that paying taxes to Caesar, in essence, they were acknowledging him as such. So if Jesus says, yes, you do need to pay taxes, He'd lose his support amongst the common people, and these very same Jewish religious leaders would immediately be able to kind of rise up and paint him as a disloyal Jew, right? Not a true lover of Israel, not a true lover of the Jewish people. And how in the world, they would ask, could he possibly be the promised Messiah if he's telling us to support with our tax money this pagan Rome and this Gentile culture, all of its ungodliness and oppression that's being kind of meted out down upon us. So these guys thought they had Jesus covered, right? No matter which side he took, it would create problems for him and problems for his ministry. So they had followed this well-laid trap with this very heavily loaded question. And so this is how they framed the whole thing. And no doubt, they think that they've got him perfectly where they want him, right? This just can't fail. This is a win-win for us. It's a lose-lose for Jesus. And yet, they are about to discover that it is very, very hard to trap God. In fact, it is always an exercise in futility. And I've brought this up before, but one of my favorite verses about God in the Bible, it's in Psalm 139, it's verse 2. It's that God, it says, you understand my thought afar off. What that means is that he knows what I'm going to think five minutes from now. Now, I don't even know what I'm going to think five minutes from now. I barely know what I'm thinking right now, right? But he knows what I'm going to think 20 days from now. He knows what I'm going to think two years from now. And so he sees our thoughts. He knows what we're going to think before we even begun to think it. And that puts him at a tremendous advantage in any kind of a debate that I would try to get into with God, right? And it certainly makes any attempt to try to trap him, as we said, very, very futile. Because he sees us coming. He knows why we're coming he sees it from miles away. And that's what we read in the rest of verse 15. It says, but he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? So he knew exactly what they were up to, right? They had given him this yes, no question. Is it option A or is it option B? Now we're going to see, though, that Jesus goes with option C, right? None of the above. Continuing on there in verse 15, he says, bring me a denarius that I might see it. So Jesus now just took this conversation in a whole new direction, and it was a pretty unexpected answer to their heavily loaded question. And here's what I think is so super interesting about this whole thing as we move on. I think it's interesting, and I think it's significant, that he even answers their question at all. Because we've seen recently Jesus didn't ask everybody's questions who came to him. And we've seen time and time again in his ministry, you know, in some of these same men we saw it just last week, people would come and ask him a question, and if he knew it wasn't an honest one, he would simply not answer it, or he would answer it with another question 
just to expose their hypocrisy. And the point is, Jesus didn't always feel compelled to always answer, especially when he knew the question wasn't genuine. And he knows this one is not, and yet he begins to answer it anyway. And the reason that he does this is that he knew, whether it was in those days concerning his disciples or all the way to this day, right here in the United States of America, maybe even more confusing for other Christians in other parts of the world at other times in history, but Jesus knew that there would always be questions about paying taxes to a government that is sometimes corrupt, a government that sometimes isn't as clean as we want it to be or isn't as aligned with our objectives as we want them to be. So the question is, okay, Jesus, how do you weigh in on these things? How are we to understand and conduct ourselves in that kind of a, a place in the world? And so I believe that Jesus answers their question for our instruction. He answers it for the benefit of his followers. So it's actually, it's an un, unexpected but very instructive answer. So he asks them to bring him this coin and then imagine this, everybody has to wait until it gets there. Now, we don't know where it came from, but how awkward would those moments have been, right? What we read next in verse 16, it says, So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Which was right, because all the money in Israel from any commerce or any daily, daily dealings would have been Roman money. The Jews were only allowed to use Jewish money to pay the temple tax because it was prescribed that in the law of Moses. And so this denarius that they brought him would have been a Roman coin. And what would happen with Roman coins at that time is that any time a new Caesar came into office, he would have all new coinage minted with his image put on it with some kind of a description of him. And the denarius at that time, it had a picture of Caesar on one side that said Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Again, an affront to the Jews because it claimed that Caesar was deity, that he was divine. And then on the back side of the coin, it was just as bad because it was a picture of Caesar seated on a throne in this priestly robe with a priestly miter. It's that tall hat, right, that they wear. And it said, Pontifex Maximus, which means the highest priest or the supreme priest, which incidentally is the title that the Pope uses today, but that's a discussion for a different day. For today, that's the coin that they hand Jesus. Again, just an affront to every religious Jew, especially at a time in the Roman Empire where this worship of Caesar was really starting to get some traction. It was starting to be enforced throughout the empire. So these guys probably think they have just handed Jesus this deadly loaded gun, right, with this heavily loaded question. They've got him right on the horns of a dilemma. Should we pay, right? Is it lawful? Does the Torah allow us to do this, to give this tribute to Caesar? Yes or no? And we can only imagine Jesus looked at the coin and Jesus answered them. And he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So there it was. That's option C, right? It's a seemingly simple answer but it has very powerful, profound implications. Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, right? This coin made by his government with his image impressed upon it, if he's asking for taxes like this, you give him those taxes. And what Jesus did with just those words, not only did he answer their question, but he lays out what is a very important principle for all of us as Christians today and all the way down throughout history because he very plainly instructed them and he instructs us if we're paying attention that government does have a rightful place and a needed place in the grand scheme of things and that it is possible that a Christian can live in subjection to the government 
and to God all at the same time. So a very clear endorsement by Jesus to this divine institution of government. And government is a divine institution, although I know it's very hard to understand that sometimes. Now, it was following the flood in Noah's time that God declared for the first time, he said that if anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. So this was the first time that we see this kind of an order established. It's the first time that we see any form of authority given, right, or government established to ensure that that justice was carried out. And then from that point in the book of Genesis, we begin to see the development of this institution of human government as God intended government to be in the world. Especially later, in particular detail, sometimes painstaking detail, we see it in the Mosaic law given to the Jews, which told them exactly how they were to be governed. All of this to say, God is a God of law and order. God is a God who does things decently and in order. And good government is a key to that in so many respects in this fallen world. And then, of course, as we turn to the New Testament, we're told as Christians that we're to be good citizens and we're to support this God-given institution of the government. Now, that doesn't mean we have to love everything. It doesn't mean we have to agree with everything that the government decrees or that they put before us. But we should respect and we should support that institution of the government and that need for government in this fallen world. And of course, it's Romans chapter 13 where Paul spends a considerable amount of space. Now remember, he's writing to Christians in Rome by the way, under one of the most corrupt and crazy of all of the Roman emperors, Caesar Nero. And this was the point in history where persecution and the killing of Christians was in full swing. And this is what Paul writes. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Let every soul be subject to crazy Caesar Nero. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And then a few verses later, he says, For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom Honor. And the idea behind all of this is so that anywhere you go in the whole wide world, right, in any nation of the world, God's intention for us as Christians is that we would be the single best block of citizens that that nation possesses because that's a good witness to the Lord. It is so that people, when they look at us, they see that we're a peaceable people. They see that we're a people who are not entangled with the kingdoms of this world, but that we are about a kingdom which is not of this world. That what we're really about is a kingdom that's bigger than this world and that's of much greater weight than this world. What we're really about, of course, is the kingdom of God as it exists even now in this world. Those are the things that really occupy us that we are really about something that is otherworldly. Now, the one exception to this, of course, is that if the government ever comes to us as Christians and demands that we do something that is clearly, and notice I said clearly, contrary to the word of God. At that point, as we saw Peter do, you know, we have to follow our conscience and our conviction, and we have to esteem our heavenly citizenship to be more important than our earthly citizenship, refuse to go along with that law and accept the consequences for doing it. Or, as in the case of the recent response to COVID, now whether we think that that was a, you know, the response of the government was right or wrong or if it was appropriate or overreaching, I believe that this was an occasion where the church 
had a golden opportunity to demonstrate grace to the government and to be a witness to the lost over what really was just an inconvenience, right? It was just a way that we could just tough it out for a season in our attempt to really honor Caesar while also honoring God. And you can disagree with me on that, but please hear me on this because I believe the bigger battle is coming. And so we need to really understand this point of balance in our minds of trying to honor Caesar while also honoring God, because if I can just be frank, it is not hard to imagine the days are coming when our governmental authorities, or already some of the corporations, the big corporations that so many of you guys work for, there will come a time where they start to mandate that people think and that people speak in a very uniform way about issues like transgenderism or homosexuality or, or their definitions of social equality or equity. And it's at that moment when we as believers, with, with all the compassion we can have in our hearts and all the truth that we can have in our minds, we should seek first and foremost to be ministers and to be instruments of reconciliation to the people who are battling with those ideas battling with these ideas that society is presenting them with, but we cannot and should not dishonor God by agreeing with deceptive ideas or agreeing with things that are a lie. But the important thing for us will be to keep our focus on reaching out to those struggling individuals and reaching out to them with the love of Jesus because there are real human lives at stake. And because of that, we've got to tell the truth. But we also need to do it as ambassadors of the love of Christ and the grace of Christ because we're trying to reach those people who are searching and who are groping for a love that's greater than anything that they can find out there in this world. So what does that mean? Right? Are we supposed to fight the government? Are we supposed to knuckle under and submit to the government? Well, I'm not sure. I don't know. But here's what I do know. I do know that when we get to that moment, right, whatever that moment looks like, if we honor God with our motives, if we stay focused on what we're supposed to be focused on, I know that God will honor us. And he will give us that wisdom in how to navigate all of the particulars as we try to recognize the government and, and maintain an appreciation for the government for what it is they provide to us. Now, here's one thing I think is super helpful in understanding God's heart around this whole thing is that when Jesus, and this is technical, but it's super important. When Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, the specific word that the Holy Spirit used there for the word render is a very important one because it specifically means to give back. Now, every other time the word give is used in this passage. And we see it actually, it's the word pay in verses 14 and 15 where it says, should we pay or should we not pay? Some of your translations probably have, should we give or should we not give? But when it's used in those senses, it's one Greek word which means give, but Jesus uses an entirely different word when he speaks and that word is give back. So what he's saying is that they were and we are, we're to give back to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar because this tax in Jesus' mind was like a debt. It was like a debt that they owed to Caesar for the use of his money, for the use of these other benefits that he provided to them. He says, you're using his system. You're using his infrastructure. So give back to him what you need to. And again, Paul kind of picks up on this idea when he writes to Timothy. He says, I exhort first that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And here's the point. If we enjoy the benefits of the government, 
in order that we can live this quiet and peaceable life, then we also have a responsibility to support the government materially with our money to make that peaceable life possible. So if we enjoy the benefit of a, a standing army, right, to protect us from threats that are on the outside, right, if we enjoy the peace with this that comes from knowing that we're not going to be invaded by nations that are around us or other places in the world. That's something that our government provides. If we're enjoying the benefits of law enforcement within the country, right, to protect us from attacks that would come from within by our own federal or fellow citizens, again, that's something that our government is supposed to provide for us. And it provides support and it provides court, you know, it, it requires court systems and legal systems, right? Roads, infrastructure, bridges, all of those things. If these are things that we look at and we see that we're benefiting from, then we shouldn't consider it to be an unspiritual thing to support them. Especially, and I think this is the key, especially when we consider that it is because of those things, by and large, it's because we don't worry about those things. We don't have to worry about the things in that kingdom. And what that does is it frees us up and enables us to be focused on our kingdom and on the work of our kingdom. Right? Paul points out here, again, that all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what occupies us because we don't have to be occupied with all of that other stuff. So the next time that you're struggling about paying your taxes or submitting to some government authority, try to reframe it and to look at it as really it's just an extension of that kingdom work that we're supposed to be about. So I think that that's really the heart behind at least half of what Jesus said here. And it only took us two hours to get there. So Government does have a rightful place. We can be in subjection to the government and to God at the same time. We have to render to Caesar what's Caesar's. But Jesus didn't just stop there, and he could have, because he'd already answered their question. But then he goes on with this bit about rendering to God the things that are God's. So just as they were to give to Caesar the things that bore his image, we are to give to God that which bears his image. And so, of course, it sets us to thinking, you know, when we start to ask ourselves, what in the world bears the image of God? What in the world has the inscription of God? What's been created in the image of God? Because we want to identify it, right, so that we can give it back to God. And so what do we do like good Christians? We turn to our Bibles. And we start at the beginning to try to discover what it is that's been created in the image of God. And so we go to Genesis chapter 1, and lo and behold, less than 40 seconds in, we come to it, right? Because in Genesis 1, the Bible declares very clearly that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. It wasn't that monkey. That was a trick monkey. The monkey was not created in the image of God. It says in Genesis 1.27 that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So Caesar's image was on the coin, but God's image is on us. And you may have heard it said that image is everything. And in this case, guess what? It really is. Image is everything. And so it sets us again to kind of wonder, maybe you've always wondered, how in the world exactly are we created in the image of God? You know, is God six foot tall and 175 pounds? Or, okay, is he five foot tall and never mind, right? But is that how we were created in the image of God? And the answer is, of course not. The Bible teaches that we were created in the image of God and it teaches that God is a tri unity, right? He's a, a tri-unity or a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when God created Adam and Eve, when he created man and woman, he created them after that very same pattern, that same design, that same image as a kind of an inferior tri-unity of body, soul, and spirit. And the body, of course, is the physical part. The soul 
refers to kind of that intellectual part of us or the emotional part of us. And then the spirit is that part of us that gives us the capacity to relate to the God who created us. That's what we have that animals don't have. That's what defines us and sets us apart as created in the image of God. And the soul and the body were created to be under the dominion of the spirit. So you have father, son, spirit. You have spirit, soul, body. That's how we're created in the image of God. But what the Bible tells us, of course, is that that image has been marred. Because not long after, again, in, in the book of Genesis, no sooner had man been created than we read that Adam and Eve chose to rebel. Although they had been clearly warned that that would bring death. And yet they did, and it did. It brought death. But it didn't bring death physically, or none of us would be sitting here today. But it brought death spiritually. Their light went out, so to speak. They were cut off from that very relationship that they and we were created for, that relationship with God. And yet it was even worse than just that, right? Because in their sin, not only did they die spiritually, but now their whole being was turned upside down. And now each one of us are born into this world where our body and our emotions are now what dominate our lives because there's no spirit, right? There's no life of the spirit to keep those things in check. So the only solution to the catastrophe of this condition is that there is a spiritual birth or a spiritual rebirth, right? So the only solution to spiritual death is spiritual birth. And that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is what? Born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Because apart from that, we have no capacity to have a relationship with God. But the gospel tells us that if a person comes to God and says, you know, I trust in your son as my savior and I want to give you my life now. I want, to, I want to make this yours. At that moment, God's Holy Spirit comes into that person's life and it gives birth to that dead spirit that's within us. And now we have the capacity for that real relationship with God through the spirit that was lost so many years ago in the garden. And now it's available to everyone. And it's only after we've been born again, now we're again able to kind of carry or to bear that image of God, that full triunity kind of image of God, right? As a soul, spirit, and body in a way that we never could before. Because what the fall had done is it effectively had reduced us from a triunity to a duality, right? Where all we had was body and soul and there was no spirit. And Paul says this to the, to the Christians at Thessalonica. He says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and here it is, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who calls you to uh, is faithful and will also do it. So, why did we need to know all of that, right? Well, the reason is, I think so, we start to understand that when Jesus says that we're to render to God which, the things that have his image on it, he's referring to our lives, but he's referring to the totality of our lives, right? To our spirit, our soul, and our body, right? Our seeing, our hearing, our speaking, our doing, our coming, our going, all those things that our body does are to be used for God's glory and for the good of others, right? So then our, our soul, our emotions, our intellect, our empathy, our compassion for people, our ability to understand people and where they are in all of this, those things that our soul does, all of those things are to also be used for the glory of God. And then our spirit, of course, that part now that comes from the Holy Spirit now being in our lives. Just tell them I'm busy. I'll, I'll get back to them when I'm done. But now the spirit in our lives 
He's the one now that directs and enables and empowers all of those things happening. And so specifically, you know, what part specifically belongs to God? Well, everything, right? Every part, all the parts. Jesus says everything should be given completely over to him. And in fact, it's just to be given what? Back to him. Right? This is why Paul writes to the Romans, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. Read the rest of it with me, which is your reasonable service. It's just the reasonable thing for us to do. To the Galatians, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul says, my life is all about Christ. My spirit is about Christ. My body is about Christ. My emotions are about Christ. My mind is about Christ. It all belongs to him and it's all being given back to him. It's all being rendered to him. And Jesus is saying, you know, we're to give our, our tax money to Caesar, but we're never to give our lives to anyone but God. Because his image, it's his image that's on us. And it's his image that people need to see when they look at us. Because understand, guys, people will read what's inscribed on you just like they read what was inscribed and they saw Caesar on the head of that coin. They should look at us and they should see God. People read you. They read you when things are good. They read you when things are bad. They read you when you're laughing or when you're crying. They read you in your marriage. They read the way that you treat your wife or your husband. They read the way you treat your kids. They read the way you treat the clerk in the store. Even the really slow one who can't seem to get the thing to click when they, you know, they read the way that you respond to that. They read you when you're suffering. They read you when you're faith, facing a health crisis or when you're healthy. They read you at the office. They read the way that we do business and the way that we handle money. They read the language that comes out of our mouths, right? They read everything because image is everything. They see the image of God upon us. And that's why God doesn't just want 49%, right? He wants 100%. And really, that's what we owe back to him. We owe him our best. We owe him our devotion. And we only owe it to him. And I will just say this because I know that already half of you are upset with me. So I'm just going to say this and then move on. But we're also never to give the government in our life or give anything else in our life that position that belongs solely to God. Because we do not bear the image of any government no matter how patriotic we might be. And I am all for healthy patriotism. But we bear at our core the image of God alone. And we are coming up into an election year, right? A very divisive and potentially explosive kind of election year. So let's remember, there's a place for government within our lives. But it's never to take the place in our lives. And it's never to be the passion of our lives that solely belongs to God alone. And the, the truth is, I think if we're honest, most Christians have less trouble with obedience to the state than they do with obedience to the Lord. Am I right? Most Christians, when we hear Christians quote this verse 17, most of the time they're emphasizing the part about rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and they kind of skip entirely the part about God which ironically is exactly what Jesus was reprimanding these religious leaders for doing, right? But there, I can't imagine there are many of us in this room this morning that would dream of not filing our income taxes because we know that there would be consequences of withholding what is due back to the government. And yet kind of a searching question is how many of us, whether knowingly or even unknowingly, are willfully withholding from God so much of what we owe back to him. 
Every one of us has this image of God impressed upon us, and that means we belong to God and not to Caesar. The Bible actually says we don't even belong to ourselves, right? To the Corinthians, Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so the question I think isn't, will we render it to Caesar? But the question really is, will we really and rightly render to God who paid so much to purchase us? And I just think that this picture of this coin, right, this whole image of the coin, it just brings such clarity to this question of our lives and the purpose of our lives, right? Jesus says, effectively, because coins are stamped with the image of Caesar, they belong to Caesar, but because we are made in the image of God, what? We belong to God, right? Because image is everything. And look at the result. Look at the end of verse 17. It says, and they marveled at him. Translation, they got it. Right? The Pharisees got it. The Herodians got it. The crowd who was looking on, they all got it. And remember, you think about that excitement they had just a few verses back. They were coming to trap Jesus, right? There's no way we got him this time. And in less than 30 seconds, right? It always takes Jesus a little bit less time than it takes me. But in less than 30 seconds, he not only slipped the trap, but he trapped the trappers, didn't he? Right? How does he do that? I love the way one pastor put it. He said that in the answer of Jesus, God was glorified, Caesar was satisfied, the people were edified, and his critics were stupefied. Right? Isn't that good? There's such a beautiful clarity, isn't there, in the wisdom of God. And it just cuts right to the heart of the issue because God's wisdom is marvelous in that true sense right, of the, something that we should be marveling about. Cuts right to the, the real question is, it wasn't really about taxes, it's not really about government, it's really about whether or not we're rendering our lives, are we giving our lives back to God? Does God have 100% of your life, body, soul, and spirit? You know, are you pressing into the things of God? Are you growing in your whole relationship with him? Or has your relationship with God become something that's kind of compartmentalized? Where, you know, he has all these parts, but I've still got these parts. Right? We want to give all of it back to him. Just because of everything he's already given to us. And as we close, just think about the absolutely unbelievable, and I mean priceless, Think about all the benefits that are ours every single day because we're citizens of his kingdom, right? Not roads and bridges and law enforcement and armies, as great as those things are in a physical sense, but you think about purpose and you think about meaning and you think about forgiveness. You think about grace. You think about his faithfulness. You think about that open throne that we can approach any time in prayer. And you think about answered prayer. You think about his provision for all of our needs. And you think about the peace and the security that is ours because we know with confidence that heaven is in our future just as sure as his word, right? And we serve a God who cannot lie. So you just think about the benefits that are ours every single day as citizens now of his kingdom, and then you start to calculate, right? Then you start to do the math. What is a response that is worthy of those things? And Jesus says, give God your whole life. Right? Give him everything because he deserves all of it. And so, of course, my hope is that there's not a single one of us this morning as Christians who would leave out of this place today and head off in our cars and, and head on to whatever it is that we intend to head on to after service, whether it's lunch or Costco or whatever it is, it's still going to be there in a few more minutes, right? But I would hope that we don't head out of here without really being able to leave this room and to be able to say with Paul, yes, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, right? but not I 
but Jesus Christ who lives in me, right? That's what my life is all about. And this, this whole life that I now live, I'm just living by faith in the Son of God because he loved me and he gave himself for me. And so I'm just living and I'm just trying to give that, all, that life right back to him. Amen? Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning and we thank you for your word, Lord, as difficult as parts are of it, Lord. We thank you for the encouragement and the clarity that it provides to us about what it is that you expect from us, Lord, what it is that you've given to us. And Father, I pray that you would help to, to write these truths in our heart, Lord. I pray that your word would find good soil in each of our hearts, Lord, and that it would have a chance to, to grow and to, to bear fruit, Lord. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.